0: Our nervous system is rigged for avoidance of bad behaviors. It is fear-based and fear-driven. And so we want to avoid pain. And, you know, we love the strokes. We love the idea of popularity and status and power. You know, and so we are working often very hard in a workplace to win those things, you know. We like when our boss pats us on the back and says, you did a good job, you know. And so that means that sometimes we can get into quite a bit of conflict about what's really good for us and for the system, and actually what we know will be rewarded. And so the more these conflicts occur, the more we disconnect inside.
1: Hi, I'm John Fitzgerald and your host on the CARD podcast. I'm curious about what's changing in the world of work. The conversations we have with our guests always bring in personal stories and unique perspectives for us all to learn from. Hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everybody, and a happy new year to all of the CARD listeners. We're back. It's January 2023. And a recurring theme that came up in our podcast in 2022 was the notion of time, time management, not getting enough time. We're all busy in our lives. And I thought the guest I have today would be the perfect way to start off 2023 in a positive way. So our topic today, is life and well-being really your number one priority And we're coming across this in our coaching practice all of the time. The idea of burnout, stress, anxiety, and people not getting enough time in their lives. So my guest today is Dr. Magdalena Backmeyer, and we came across each other in London many years ago on a co-coaching program and our joint interests in neuroscience and career coaching. And Magdalena is the creator of the GRID method for health results and success and neuroscientists, productivity and well-being expert, leading international coach and passionate educator who founded Make Time Count to support people in being and doing well. Her unique heart, mind, body and spirit approach helps people navigate life, lead and heal by tapping into the full power of their nervous system. Magdalena teaches minds to feel and hearts to think and believes talent is not in short supply. Connected people are. She's the author of three books, Get Productive, Body Talk and the Get Productive Grid. Finalist in the Wishing Shelf Book Award 2022 and her books offer practical and easy to apply tools. Her current work explores how balance supports human flourishing, effective habit change, mental health and burnout. And after contacting Magdalena around October time about coming on the podcast, I started to do her grid <laughs> and I am now an advocate for the grid. And uh, thanks a million, Magdalena, for sharing your grid with the world. And
0: you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John, for having me. It's a pleasure. So
1: when we start the podcast, we always ask this question, tell us a little bit about your younger formative years, early influences and values you believed that shaped who you are today.
0: So probably the things that have shaped me the most is the little town I was born in and grew up in in Poland, which is very little. It had huge aspirations to become a big town and never did. Two others grew around it. And then effectively being a migrant, an immigrant, and moving as a kid to the US with my family in pursuit of a better life and freedom. So those probably you know, are my sort of really formative influences as well as basically growing up in nature. So the spiritual side of me is very much linked to, you know, two rivers, a big forest, which then merged with the buzz of New York City, the Big Apple, (laughs) where I grew up.
1: That immigrant mindset and making a life in a new country, because that's so important, I think, for the world of work that we live in today. I've heard the immigrant mindset being one that you know, you stretch yourself more, you learn more. Tell me about those experiences of having that immigrant mindset.
0: Yes, I think being an immigrant really is your life training in connecting heart and mind. Because you are having to find your place in the world. It's not, you know, you don't have your natural place as you did where wherever you were. You're slightly away from your roots and you're having to figure the world out but also stay very true to yourself and who you are. So I think that, you know, is probably very formative to do, but it's also incredibly hard. Yeah.
1: And your interest in neuroscience and your training as a doctor, tell us about why you choose this path in your career then.
0: So basically, you know, my parents being immigrants and hardworking people, worked hard and looked around and thought uh, I should be a doctor or a lawyer. But, you know, every parent of an immigrant, if you listen to anyone interviewing, will say their parents told them to be those two things. Mostly because when we look around, you know, you think, well, these are regarded professions. You make a good living and you're doing good in the world, hopefully. You know, so that was that. But I think I have always, always followed my curiosity. And I think my curiosity and my value about, you know, being in integrity to myself. I loved science. I was very interested in minds and brains. And to be fair, I was squeamish of blood and needles. So the idea of being a doctor really was just not on the cards for me. I was, you know, good in the lab with animals, but, um, you know, to sort of think about opening a human in that way, I felt, not for me. And so I chose a research career to basically follow my love of curiosity and looking at things that interested me. And that has continued for the rest of my career so far. I think I'm just driven by learning and curiosity.
1: So you're opening humans in a different way.
0: Indeed, right? Isn't that so?
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I've been lucky to be in a room with you and have your wisdom imparted. So the subject of one of your talks was let your heart drive and your brain lead the way. Explain what you mean by that and bring this into, I suppose, the everyday working life for people who are listening.
0: Of course. So I guess in a nutshell, you know, we are more than minds on legs. I like saying, you know, I think that oftentimes in the world we are sort of thinking that we have to work things out. You know, we have to figure out how to find our place. We have to see what's what. And that calls on our cognitive capacities. But at the same time, you know, most of workplace problems, life problems, the challenges we face actually come from lack of connection, lack of connection and feeling. And this connection is both to ourselves and to each other, you know, empathy, engagement with work, love of work, a love of, you know, each other, love of a team. So I was basically saying that, you know, we are in a way trained in school, certainly, to use our brains, you know, to use our minds, to figure out formulas, to do things, to do our maths, to write an essay. But how often are we asked, what do you love to write about, you know, and what do you love about adding up numbers? So the idea there was to basically connect those two things far more strongly, because I think that in the Western world, we are quite mind-led.
1: And why do you think that is that we haven't developed the education system further to connect brain and heart and mind?
0: Uh-huh. That's a tough question to ask. I think in many ways, we somehow don't make time for it. it, is the bottom line, you know, is we always have this assumption, you know, I've seen it as a facilitator in the workplace. Meetings are about getting through the agenda. They are about task-based things. We're going to make these decisions. We're going to brief people about this, etc. Very infrequently, do we make time to be, to figure out how we're feeling? And, you know, in fact, I remember when I was teaching one of my models, at NASA, one of the things they said is how interesting that if we ask everyone how they are energetically, where their heart is at the current moment, we can align the whole team together better to actually then problem solve. So, you know, sometimes they say you have to go slower to go faster. I think we make these assumptions that if we spend time connecting to how we really are inside, that we're going to not be as productive. And I think What I've been trying to do is to redefine productivity as not just doing tasks.
1: Yeah, I mean, that leads to organization behavior and the behavior that we have been educated into is the to-do list, to do more rather than to be more. And how have you seen those behaviors then impact in non-healthy ways within organizations?
0: Well, I think as an educator, I am a big fan of Carol Dweck's work in the States and the idea of strength mindset and teaching people at all ages about having a go and not risking failure. But let's face it, you know, our nervous system is rigged for avoidance of bad behaviors. It is fear-based and fear-driven. And so we want to avoid pain and, you know, we love the strokes. We love the idea of popularity and status and power, you know. And so we are working often very hard in a workplace to win those things, you know. We like when our boss pats us on the back and says, you did a good job, you know. And so that means that sometimes we can get into quite a bit of conflict about what's really good, for us and for the system and actually what we know will be rewarded and so the more these conflicts occur the more we disconnect inside.
1: So when you bring that into performance management in an organization then how do you bring that methodology into reward in an organization? Well,
0: it starts off I remember you know doing a large appraisal change project in a big organization and you know starting appraisal from a different place. So rather than looking at appraisal through the task-based method of saying, okay, here were your KPIs, (laughs) you know, exceeded those, you've met those, and tick, tick. Asking people a question that maybe seems counterintuitive, but asking the question of, what is your life about? (laughs) It's a big question. So we had to train people quite a lot in workshops about beginning to step into their own personal leadership to start asking, what is my life about? Because one of the things we really know with every decade of our life is that we will find those questions, those existential big questions... To be the things that are keeping us up at night and the things that if we do not solve for ourselves also become workplace problems. You know, if I don't actually know that I'm self-realizing, if I don't know that I am working with my strengths, if I don't feel I'm in the right place, I start to act out. And so a lot of, you know, workplace problems, including disengagement with one's work, problems, interpersonal problems, are often driven by people not really understanding themselves.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I used to plan my days with the old fashioned matrix of the to do list. And what I noticed was that I was either beating myself up because I wasn't getting enough of my to do list done. And then when I started to do your grid, some of the key learnings for me were it helped me to understand where my heart and mind were in conflict. And that's where I wasn't achieving my results in certain areas in my life And it helped me to prioritize the most important stuff. And I think back to what you said there, that we can be getting lots of stuff done, but is it linking to your purpose in life and and what you really want your life to be about? And it also helped me to... I'm doing a bit of coaching back here and reflections now, Magdalena, but it helped me to see what was distracting me and the stuff that was the routines that I had for myself that were not serving me well. And I noticed that you mentioned the word having a practice and that's in a positive way about framing your life with the grid. What I took from it was that I had a practice that wasn't serving me, which were all of these distractions and habits that were taking me further away from what I wanted in my life. So maybe could we bring this to life for listeners now about what is the grid and how can you get holistically productive with the grid rather than just productive and doing your to-do lists?
0: Of course. I think in a nutshell, grid is effectively doing four to-do lists, let's say very crudely, okay? The idea is that you are really thinking and conditioning yourself habitually to be always putting on your map four things, personal life, work, self-care, and career. And so, you know, if you, for those, you know, we train to look at things that way, there are some very important things that happen as a result of showing up to that balance. Okay. Because we all know that, you know, we try our best to do work in life. And for most of us, that is quite visible. You know, we know we live somewhere. We know we have people we live with look after. And then there's the stuff we do, you know, to earn our living, so to speak. So that is very obvious. You know, the research literature for a long time has talked about balancing that. But I think what I found, you're looking, you know, first at researchers and academics, later at entrepreneurs, business people, workplace, stay-at-home moms, um, students, is that there are these two other variables, these two other areas, self-care and career, that are actually energetically refueling. You know, I feel better if I look after myself. I feel better if I'm rested. I feel much better if I know what my purpose is, if I know that I'm advancing my mastery, if I'm making a difference. That is the stuff that actually refuels. But in an everyday busy world, it is so, so easy to push those things off And then, you know, what ends up happening is the to-do list, which is the typical, I've got to do this for my life and the basics, and I've got to do these things for my work to survive, which, of course, takes us incredibly far away from, you know, the aspiration and the full definition of well-being and thriving, because survival is rather basic.
1: So we're operating from survival principles, which from the brain you're talking about, we're wired to survive. And when I meet people who are impacted by a job change or a job loss, like we would meet in career coaching, they're in survival mode. I need to get another job. I need to get one now, fast. Let's get there. And to get them into a more proactive, longer term thinking about what's right for my life, what's right for my career, am I making the right choice at this time, can you help me think how... From a brain perspective, I could bring that person on the journey.
0: Well, I would say, and I'm speaking very practically, you know, as an executive coach, that when we have, you know, and this I think follows a good wise proverb when someone is hungry, you give them bread, right? So when someone's really on the back foot and in a panic mode, you have to meet them in their space, you have to meet them in their panic, okay? But you can also help them see what is there. So, you know, last year when I was doing the grid workshop at a conference, I sort of said, you know, imagine that panic often skews our perspective. It makes us go into the place where we're going, oh no, I just lost my job, right? Or I'm gonna be restructured. Or I'm thinking of an executive I work with, oh my God, they're doing some assessment and everyone in the team is red, I'm red. So they're gonna probably suck some of us and get some greens and blues into the team. A fear-based mindset, right? But what we must do. Is to take just a tiny bit step back and simply look at the grid framework to say, and what else is happening in my life? Oh, my daughter is about to go to university or, you know, my son is off to a good opportunity. And gosh, I raised that kid. Right. So a little bit of appreciation, like I have another value. I have another role. I'm actually really good at what I do. So from a career point of view, one of the things we often do as great coaches is we show people how to take the value of what they do in any of these four quadrants and simply reapply it elsewhere. Okay. And that allows us to help people build this positive, but genuinely positive mindset, as opposed to this kind of fakey one, you know, is because... In fact, you know, one of the things that I've noticed with the grid is that if we make our life only about career, we often end up quite sad. People say, Oh, you know, I miss my boats, I never got married, I, you know, I don't have a personal life, my friendships are a bit shallow. So we're always grieving for the other quadrants, you know. Maybe I'm always on the move, I'm always flying, you know, around the world, I never have roots. You hear it in their language that they're out of balance. But when we develop a good pedestal in each of these quadrants, even being in danger of one, whether it's through a relationship breaking or a bad diagnosis for the self, or you know going through a transition or losing a job or being at risk of redundancy, we have other things to hold us steady, you see? I call it like a table with four legs as opposed to one leg. So you know, one of them might get slightly cut off a little bit. So yes, you've noticed the imbalance, But you can put something there and get back to balance much more readily. And I think that's what the grid teaches us.
1: I want to ask you a quick question. Is your organization going through unprecedented growth, restructuring, or change? At Harmonix, through our consultancy and coaching work with business and HR leaders, we face one common challenge, the overwhelming pace of change and not enough time or resources to properly reset to become future fit. If you would like to register for a free diagnostic session with one of our team of experts, go to harmonics.ie to get in touch today. Now, back to the podcast. Fantastic. I love that uh, metaphor of the table with four legs and having the balance. So when we look then at putting our lives together, I've noticed for the last three months, for example, that the priorities, you do this in a way as well that is a non-technological way. Of putting the grid together. So maybe just bring that to life for people around the imagery and the colours that you bring to it. Well,
0: you know, I think I've always been inspired by science being art and art being science. And one of the things that, you know, while I have an appreciation for technological innovation, from an educational and neurological perspective, there is enough research to say that Not all of technological innovation, especially devices are helping us do well. You know, sometimes we have more iPads to take care of process, but, you know, we're talking to our team members without ever making eye contact. And it looks like we're not even there. You know, we're at home at dinner tables with everybody being on the device, trying to be here and elsewhere and in 10 different places and effectively being nowhere. So from that perspective... And also from what I know about how we train habits and how powerful the visual system is. And once personalization, I chose on purpose to make the grid paper-based. I said, there's enough devices. And that was, you know, about 10 years ago, I already had a smartphone back then. And I thought, no thanks. And also I just literally read a paper, you know, on Friday, looking at the review of well-being apps. And one of the key things about them is that yes, maybe in the short term, you know, we get an app and we get all excited, uh, you know, or a computer program, but then we're linked to that device and we need alerts. And so we need alerts as little triggers to help us. Whereas a piece of paper next to your desk or in your diary is always with you. And I guess because my family sought freedom from, you know, communism and oppression, freedom is a very important value for me. And I do really think that when it comes to our individual privacy, Your paper is your paper. Your grid is your grid. Uh, You know, it's not digital. It's not up there. I mean, yes, you can make a grid on a remarkable device if you want, but fundamentally, it's about you and the way, you know, now that we're making little short films about people using the grid and, and the ways it's enriched their life. What we really hear is people saying, I love the fact that I can personalize it. I love that I can put the colors I like. I love that I can make it the way I want it. I love that I can give it the time scale I want. And we know that from psychology research anyways, that you know we all like autonomy. We like flexibility. We do not want to adapt the human to a particular app. We want the process to adapt to the human. So I always say, put the human first. And...
1: You mentioned technology there and the environment in which we're surrounded by now. Have you any research or any papers that you've seen on what technology is doing to our brains and this constant barrage of alerts and so on and so forth? I was reading Johan Harry's Stolen Focus book, yes. and one of the stats on the myth of multitasking was most workers can't go six minutes without checking email or instant messaging, It's just this constant barrage. So how do we manage this environment in this constant world of alerts and distractions? We
0: learn good boundaries. You know, the device is not the problem. The way we use the device is a problem. You know, the the things that a smartphone can do for us, God sends, you know, (laughs) They're, they're brilliant things. And at the same time, we do need to learn to use technology ethically for ourselves. So, you know, it is not about just like everything else, you know, things are in the world because they are there to solve a problem. The good and responsible way to solve problems, as you know, in organizations is not to make 10 others. (laughs) So it is about knowing how to have those boundaries. And I would add that, you know, what I've seen during COVID is that, which from a neurological perspective is somewhat complex, is that... In the past, you know, when we went to work, we would take those devices, we'd function in that sort of environment with pings and multiple spreadsheets and whatever it be in that space. And then we came back home, which was to our own design. So if I, you know, if I had a technology-free home, that was what it was. And I could really distinguish the boundary between them. Neurologically, one of the things that is really difficult with people working at home is that our space, we know, snaps our nervous system into a specific way of being. So if I am at home, you know, working and I continuously am in that mode, let's say in my kitchen or my bedroom because I work from home, how do I later tell my body and my nervous system that now I'm off? It's really hard. So there's a huge level of blending, uh, you know, for people who cannot or are not able to have those boundaries. That actually means that when you look at burnout, you know, burnout is higher across the patch, but a lot of people are burning out because of these simple things like lack of those rituals, those boundaries, those separations that are actually necessary in order to reset our nervous system.
1: Wow, it really points out that we need to change our education system and both in our schools, in our colleges, in our places of work, that we're teaching people how to thrive in the modern world. And obviously, your grid is a way to do that. You also make a point there about talent is in short supply versus whole connected people in short supply. That's a provocative statement. So explain more about that. Well,
0: you know, I remember preparing this talk for this lovely charity in a city, um, and it was a work-based talk in terms of corporate environments. And it kind of just came out when I was making my slides and then realized how true it is and how, you know, we are often fed headlines and told to panic, and we seem to parrot them around. And this idea that, you know, talent is in short supply, I believe is a fallacy. I think what I've seen both working inside organizations and now working as an outside consultant and coach is that we can be lazy about the way we look for talent. You know, we prescribe what talent is and isn't. And actually, you know, from a evolutionary point of view, neurological point of view, no human being can be on this planet who doesn't excel and have skills. The question is about talent utilization. You know, how do we really leverage the talent we have and use it well so that everyone is, you know, on the bus in the right seat so to speak, you know. And that is actually what really helps people shine and be motivated and do well and fuels them To say, people see me, you know, the same way that in therapy or coaching, people say, you know, you succeed in your relationship with your executive client because they know you get them. Why do you get them? Because you see them. You see them as a human. And I think in the workplace, you know, a lot of what I've seen in terms of disengagement, you know, people leaving jobs and drones, so talent walking out the door has to do with the fact that a lot of people feel they are not appreciated, not seen, not really genuinely consulted. They are treated as an object, as something that fills in, you know, the sort of human capital that is heartless. And that is not to say that that's what organizational leaders or or my HR colleagues want, quite the opposite. So really the challenge is seeing how is it that we have so many caring CEOs and, you know, OD professionals, and yet people nonetheless have this experience uh, far too often.
1: Mm. And you talk about designing for humans in the future of work and your human-centric approach having triple benefits. So just expand on that a little bit. Well,
0: you know, as a talent developer, you know, I've been through my hoops of developing leadership programs, selecting talent, doing all the things that are done. And oftentimes, I guess, as this migrant, this person who's always kind of in life been on the periphery at some sort of intersection of minority characteristics, I have seen how people don't get seen, people don't make into those things. And so in a way, I think it's been more about really trying to look at how we can be smarter about the way we do that. And so the idea of a triple benefit for me came out of the idea that I want, and this was purely my personal aspiration when I started my own consultancy and my company, was that if we ever do a program, I want that person to benefit, but I want them to become a change agent, which means I want them to take that and enrich the people around them. And so that means that others benefit, right? So it's not a just a me, 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 because sometimes you're in the place because you got selected, but people around you should know that you're there, not just for yourself. And the triple benefit is that if that starts to happen, as I've you know seen through some of our kind of longer term experiments in different countries, then what ends up happening is that you actually change the culture and brand of the place. So people begin to see that the way things are done around here in terms of our culture are more, you know, communal, are more helpful towards everyone. So I'll give you a practical example. So when I get asked to deliver something for quote talent, a selected group of people, I tend to always contract that I will do a general workshop, even if it's just 90 minutes for the whole, because I basically say some of you made it, but that's a privilege. And actually a lot of the things we want to start the conversation with are for everyone. And so if we try to stay inclusive, I think this makes a very big difference.
1: Yeah I could um I'm already thinking about uh, the talk that you might give and how you might inspire many different organizations Magdalena as you have all over the world if you were to address you know, an organization today and the world that we've been through in the last few years, what would the key points be that you would be speaking to if you were to leave that organization with some, you know, legacy takeaways?
0: You know, if I think about that, the thing that comes to mind would be something that I guess you've been to some of my talks, but would be making time for reflection and sharing of experience, you know, and I think that is so core to, effectiveness and feeling heard you know so people often complain they say oh you know how do we connect because we're now at a distance I connect to my team who's all over the country in a brilliant way because actually we enjoy mm. being connected <laughs> so it's not the distance you know distance is a good excuse not to connect you know um, but it's certainly not um, a real barrier and you mentioned feeling
1: heard there, and. We've all worked with people in organisations who are very uncomfortable with feelings. So how do we make our leaders more comfortable with discussing feelings?
0: We practice. I can't put it any other way, you know. How do we get better at driving and how do we get better at everything we do?
1: And we've got to make it a priority. We
0: make it a priority. We show up and we practice and we enjoy getting it wrong. I think, you know, when I sometimes, you know, as a conflict mediator, I'd I'd watch people and say, oh my God, you know, they took it the wrong way. And I said, say that again. Say, honey, you took it the wrong way. (laughs) How nice it is to just reframe it and see it in a different way. But that requires that our heart stays open and that our mind stays open and curious that we don't get funneled down to this kind of, oh, fear, you know, gosh so yeah and that takes practice so I totally totally empathize with people and think you know it is something that if you're starting off and it's a new landscape for you you might go I'll never get there and I often find people saying you know I'll never be as good as you you do this for a living you're in a different boat to me and my answer back is that imagine that you're partner, boyfriend, girlfriend was a Michelin star chef. Okay. So they're clearly, you know, artful and absolutely amazing. But if you wanted to cook them dinner, you could go and get some pasta and a good sauce, present it well, and it would be good enough. And I think we have to really empower people to have more confidence and trust in this good enough mindset.
1: That's a fantastic message to leave us with. I could talk to you all day, Magdalena. Just some quick questions that we put into the back of the podcast a book that you would most recommend
0: oh where do I start there are so many but I'll tell you right now at the moment I am in love with Chekhov's short stories and I think there's so much you know they're short so that's lovely and they are just beautiful at really showing you the heart of a human being
1: A podcast, if you listen to them, that you'd recommend?
0: I must admit, I'm not particularly like, you know, a fan or a devotee of a particular podcast. What I tend to do is I make time to listen I love radio, I you know, I love interviews, I love programs, and I love Audible. I think Audible and I have, you know, I can be a poster child for Audible. So I love hearing things very much. And so when a good podcast comes along, you know, and someone says, oh, you should listen to this, or somehow it passes through my radar, I will give it a go, of course.
1: Great stuff. Best life or career advice you were given in life and by whom? You
0: know, actually, that when I was a student, There was a professor called Samuel Feldman and um, this man was uh, very kind and um, he gave me this advice when I was going to do my PhD. He said, go with your strengths, Magdalena, so you're not always playing catch up because I was a natural improver. So I used to think, oh, you know, I'm not so good at this. So If I can only pull my socks up here, then I'll get better. And he gave me this advice. And over the years, I have really thought Samuel was uh, was onto something really good. It's nice to know what you're good at and do more of that.
1: Great stuff. And last one, then, if you're to name one person that motivates and inspires you, who would that be and why?
0: Again, there are so many. And I have sort of a practice of trying to find some. I have a kind of my own advisory board of people, imaginary people who, you know, come from history, different backgrounds, different roles. And I sort of think, what would they do? But the people who honestly inspire me is every person I meet, you know. I get on a bus and I see a bus driver and I think, gosh, you're carrying 38 humans here. That's freaking inspirational. I'm not sure I could do it. You know, uh, you know yeah, today yeah. I was in Starbucks getting my coffee and the woman who works there, she makes that coffee every day and puts a smile. She inspires me. How many of us wish we could do that every day, you know, and, and need to do that and want to do that. So I feel like we're all here to inspire each other.
1: So Magdalena, to hear more of what you have to say, have you anything you could guide us to that um, the listeners can connect with you and find out more?
0: Uh, Yes, absolutely. I think the best thing to do would be to visit my website. It's www.maketimecount.com. Sign up to our newsletter so you can stay in touch and uh, explore a lot of free resources. So we do quite a lot of good education and make sure that people have tips and access to things that can really
1: help them. I'm signed up to your business goal setting workshop next week so I'm looking forward to that Magdalena. Wonderful. It's always inspiring and full of wisdom speaking to you and delighted that you joined us on the podcast. Thanks so much for your inspiration and The way you speak, the way you think, the way you connect with the world is a role model, I think, for many of us in life. And I've always admired what you've done from a distance. So thanks to be up close with you today. Thank you, Magdalena.
0: Thank you very much for having me. And let's wish everybody a great year. But let it be a good year of recovery and growth.
1: And we are good enough.
0: And we are good enough. (laughs) Absolutely.
1: Thank you, Magdalena. Thanks for listening to The Core today. We would really appreciate if you could follow, subscribe and share as we seek to grow our community of listeners. Speak again soon.